0: I remember Monday, we're driving to Cincy, and I'm feeling myself. I'm telling my wife, Carrie, I'm like, man, like, I love preaching. I'm in preacher mode. I can do it again. I can go right now. Like, I'm just talking all this stuff. And then I get a call from pastor a couple hours later, like, hey, we need you to preach Sunday. I'm like, oh, it's a little different now. (laughs) Maybe I'm not in preacher mode. Uh, But right? Uh, there's nothing, you've never arrived, you've never attained, right? That's my, that's my Philippians three sermon for you. You got to press towards the mark. You've, you've never reached the point of maturity you really think you have. Um, but I am happy to do this this particular uh, text, the text being Hebrews chapter four, the end of the chapter there, verses 14, 15, and 16, um, because this, this is one that has been helpful for me and, then, and just trying to see God in a different way than what is just typically taught about him. Um, not that any of those things that have been taught about him wrong, healer, provider, protector, um, but I think there is a more um, comforting side that we can uh, reach out to him for. So let's go ahead and uh, read those verses there. If you stand with me. We got it up there? Cool. Uh, So this is coming from the ESV, starting with verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. All right, I'll stand, please. Uh, God, uh, we ask that you um, look over us during this time uh, and that you speak to us in whatever individual way we need to be spoken to. Um, help us with uh, whatever uh, could be useful for us to get to know you better in the next week. Uh, allow me to try to get your word out, not try to get my opinions out, but so that the, the body may be blessed. Amen. 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 All right, all right, all right. So, uh, in verse 14, um, he starts off with talking about the high priest. Uh, high priest. And so to really catch the weight of that, we're gonna go through some of Israel's history here. It would take a long time to go through all of it, hours. And we'd have to read all of Leviticus, all of numbers, all of the book of Hebrews to really make all the connections. So we're gonna try to do like a seven minute crash course in some of Israel's uh, priestly history. Um, Just kinda taking some tidbits that may be relevant to what actually is gonna be said today. Um, So that being the Israelites, have the Exodus story. They escaped Egypt. um, And then they're out in the wilderness and God has them worship him in a tent. Tent is a tabernacle. Tabernacle becomes the temple. um, And essentially what he does is he establishes these rules and laws. Here's how you worship me, the proper way to do it, when to do it. Here's how I would like to be worshiped. Um, And I would say instead of having everyone figure this out and memorize this and know it constantly, he assigns a group of people to be in charge of knowing this information, uh, the Levites. So one tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi, uh, they become the priest uh, in charge of knowing how God is to be worshipped. They're the ones who know all the rules. They're the ones who work the temple and understand here's how God wants to be worshipped. And so the priests, um, they essentially have church every day. In the temple. And what they do every day are similar roles that we do. There's a, a Levite choir responsible for singing. There were Levites who were in charge, similar to our greeters and ushers. It was your job to open the gates and welcome people and let everyone know that church was started. There was a Levite assigned to just shoveling coal. Um, so everyone had uh, a job to do um, as a Levite. And to do that job, you had to be ritually clean uh, to make sure that you were prepared for the work. And there was no one who was always just particular set. Um, they would show up to the temple that morning, and they would have a lottery. They would instead of instead of just me always preaching, or DeCorey always on facilities, and Karen always ushering. The three of us would show up. Who's got what job? Cool, we're doing it. And that's essentially how they spread the workout. Uh, well, one of these priests who initially was Aaron. Um, Aaron was the first high priest. Um, he was to be like. The best of the best. He was the man. Uh, Jewish historians write it as he was supposed to be the greatest in spiritual knowledge, strength, beauty, wisdom, wealth. Um, the, the future high priests all had to be descendants of Aaron. It was just assigned to him and his family. Uh, and this guy was to make sure that he did every, everything else ran well with the other priests. He was kind of, in our time, a pastor of pastors, he was this super pastor. But he also played a role in the judicial system, in courts, and different things. He also played a role in making national decisions. Uh, so essentially uh, uh, what would happen, someone, the king, would come to the high priest and ask him, hey, should Jerusalem go to war? Should Jerusalem expand its territory on the east? And the high priest would use these, uh, the top left picture, these lights that were on his chest to, t- to try to determine yes or no, is this God's will, is it not God's will? Um, so essentially what we did last week when we bombed Iran, that decision would have gone to the high priest. Should we go do this airstrike? And it would have been his choice whether or not he thinks this is or is not a good idea. I mean, so as you can see, this dude was the man, right? He was like vice president, pastor, and police chief all in one job. Huge role. Doesn't actually sound fun at all. Uh, but so what the, what's happening here in the book of Hebrews is that the writer is trying to tell the audience something that they they may need help with, right? We need help with the history because we don't know that. They didn't need help with that. They knew that very well. But what he was trying to tell them is, hey, Jesus is like a high priest. Jesus is the high priest, in fact. Um, and so he uses different analogies throughout the book, one being the high priest's main job. Uh, if you look at this picture on the far right, uh, once a year, the high priest had to do church the service all by himself. He did everything. Um, and if he did it wrong, he died. And at the end of the service, he would go behind this curtain where the Ark of the Covenant was and sprinkle blood from a cup, similar to how we uh, drink the blood from the communion cup, on the, on the on the altar as a sacrifice for the whole people. This was the Day of Atonement, and this is the curtain that was torn at Jesus' sacrifice. And so he's trying to make this connection. So that's why in verse 14 he's saying we have Jesus who passed through the heavens because just like they would understand analogy because the high priest passed through the curtain uh, once a year. And so he's trying to say not only is Jesus the high priest, but he's a better high priest. And so throughout the first eight, ten chapters of Hebrews, he's just making all these different points. In chapter one, here's a different point. Chapter two is a different point on why Jesus is a better priest high priest than what they were used to. Particularly here in verse 15, the point he's making right here is that you have a high priest who can sympathize with you. Um, so that's what really we're going to look at for the whole of today. Why was that important? Why, what's, why is that a point worth noting? What are the implications of that? And so the assumption is that they were used to a high priest that couldn't sympathize with them, uh, which makes sense. You think about his job, this dude was in the church all day long, um, he had a house in Jerusalem, but he also had a private quarter attached to the temple because he had to be there so much. Um, there was even uh, uh, a rule, a law, where the high priest cannot be near a dead body because that would make him ritually unclean for seven days, which means he can't do the church service, which means he can't pray for the sins of the people. Uh, so let's look at a let's look at another chapter in the Bible, Leviticus chapter ten. Uh, we're going to talk about 1 through 7, but we're only going to read starting at verse uh, 5. So I'll summarize 1 through 4 for you. Aaron has four sons. He has four sons. Uh, and the two oldest one day were doing their duty in the temple. They did it wrong. Fire burnt them up. They died. They got consumed by fire because they weren't right. So Moses sends word for two other guys, come get him. Just pick these cats up and just drag them out. Just drag them out, and then we're moving along. So here in verse 5, picking up the story, Aaron, high priest, says, So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, Ithamar is Aaron's two younger sons who are now going to be the new high priest because the two older ones just died. He says, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. So he just told them, you don't get to cry. This was part of the high priest's job. You didn't get to mourn over the dead. You didn't get to be around the dead because you'd be unclean. And he says, right, not only will wrath come on you, but the high priest is responsible for the sins of the people. The wrath would also come on the congregations. So he says, let someone else worry about that. Let your brothers and the whole house of Israel be well of the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. So in verse 7, he says, not only can you not mourn over them right now, you can't even go outside to watch the funeral in the doorway. So as you can see, this was kind of a dehumanized role. People were naturally not connected to the high priest. They didn't see him as someone who could sympathize. This This dude don't even go to funerals. He's not normal. He's president and he's vice president, police chief, and super pastor all in the same time. And we, have a, we just naturally have a problem with that kind of authority, right? Even in the meet and greet, you can hug everyone, hey, 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 hey. Then you get to the pastor, how you doing, pastor? Right? We don't know how to handle that type of authority. You don't know how to be friends with someone who's in those really high positions. Even if it's someone at work, someone you had lunch with every day, they get promoted and now you're supervised, like, do we still eat with them? Right? Is, it, is that awkward now? So he's saying, I get this is weird for you, for someone to be in this authority, and also be able to sympathize with you. So here's why I'm showing you that Jesus is better. And so all that 10 minutes for the weight of one sentence to say, I strongly, strongly believe that when it comes to this part of the relationship, we are just as, just, we are just as disconnected from God and Christ as the Israelites were from their high priest in this sense of the relationship we, right, they, they liked the high priest, they saw him, and the, when they'd see him out in the courts in the marketplace, they'd, ah, right, but it was still like a celebrity. It wasn't, hey, I see you like me, right, because he wasn't normal. He wasn't human. He didn't cry for his kids dying. That's not, right, normal people don't do that, uh, and similar for us, when we t- think about God, he's God, like, he's, he's high priest. He's one in control. He's way maker. He's miracle worker. He's Laura in the courtroom, all the sayings we come up, but it's never, he's, well, we're talking about having a close personal relationship with him as well, uh, but we believe all those other things. So we operate with him as this disconnected high priest who we believe, right? We believe in that part of him, uh, but not the personal, personal level relationship with him. So story. Uh, when I, since I've been married, up until this day, uh, I struggle with knowing how to support my wife when she tells me something, something she's going through. Um, but that's, that was confusing for me at first because I thought I was doing all the right stuff. Uh, she, she told me I wasn't, uh, but <laughs> I thought I was doing the right thing. Example, um, come home from work, hey baby, how was your day? My mind—that's what, what a good husband does, right? I just got points. How was your day? Well, it was a little frustrating. Oh, why was it frustrating? She got more points. The internet—she's a school teacher. Uh, internet in my classroom wasn't working, so I couldn't email the other teachers or put the kids' info into the system. And I'm like, oh, dang. Well, have you? Uh, did you? Did you email the IT guy? And. She says, No, I couldn't email IT guy. You weren't listening. Like, I don't, the internet in my room isn't working. I'm like, I'm obviously listening, right? We're talking. I'm obviously listening. But I'm just saying, like, we, we got internet here at the house and three working computers. Let's, let's email him now. In fact, give me his email and I'll let him know what's going on in your room, right? Points. I'm just this master idea. <laughs> um, you know how it ends. <laughs> Um, but for me, it took a while to realize that she didn't want someone who was just going to like fix those problems. Um, she wanted someone who was going to like understand her feelings and communicate that and let her know that I was there for it. things would be all right. And as I kind of, was, which was crazy to me at first. Like, uh, but as I listened to her talk to other people, and her respond differently than how she responded when she spoke to me, I picked up on some things. (laughs) It's three things typically she was looking for. Someone who's going to be there for someone who understands, someone who's going to be a safe place for her feelings. Uh, So I would like to make the case that Christ can be these things for you. Um, But I think... What happens is, as I said before, we, only, we don't come to him looking for these things, right? That's what my friend does. That's what my coworker does. That's what my mom does. That's what my brother does. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus, right, he is, he's the one who heals my body. He's not the one who sympathizes with me as someone who has, whose body has suffered and been broken, even though he can. He, Jesus is the, like, if, if I come to him, it's going to be to get me out of the situation, not to talk to me through the situation. Not saying that that's bad, right? That's part of his job. But again, he's often he's just high priest. He's just all these wonderful things, but never the personal one who can sympathize with you. And even when we try, we try uh, and we try to go and read some really uplifting scripture and we try to listen to some super positive, encouraging Christian music and it doesn't work. You don't feel better. In fact, when it doesn't work, you just feel like something's wrong with me. I'm not mature. Something's wrong with my Christianity. And then you end up listening to some R&B song, and you feel a lot better. But why? Because in the R&B song, that person was singing about what you're actually going through, and that comforted you. So make the case that even though God is all those other great things, true that He can also be someone who is there for you, understands, and what's the other one? It is a safe place. So, as far as being there for you, um, I, I, know I don't think Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews here is trying to make a point about God's omnipotence, but the truth is, no one has ever been more there for you than God has. Uh, we like someone who we can say, man, we go way back, we got, we've done this and this together. Like, no one has gone further back with you than God. It's <laughs> like... From the beginning of beginnings, name, written in the book, of Life for the Foundations of Earth, y'all go way, way back. And if you're talking about having memories with someone, he's like, there's, there's no one who can say other than God, I've been with you every step of the way. you got a friend, you got a relative who's there for you, a lot of stuff, and you appreciate those good memories, and that's why you connect with them. But we'll realize he's been there with you and all those memories. Sometimes that's what we get angry about, because it's like, well, why didn't you do nothing if you were there? but he was there. He says, I'm there for you. Not only am I like, was I there for you in that sense, but I've been in your shoes. I have been a human. I walk this earth. I know what it's like to grieve. I know what it's like to have joy. I know what it's like to have a family, to have friends. I know what it's like for those friends to go to sleep on you when you need them most. I know what it's like to, to be stressed out In the middle of the night, wondering, should or should I not follow the will of God? How hard will this be on me? I know what it's like when your your parents tell you to do something that's actually not that great of an idea, but I got to do it anyway, because it's mom, right? He's just like, I actually have been through these things. I truly am a high priest who's able to sympathize with you in all your weaknesses. And you may say, well, I get he knows what it's like to be human, but as far as my sins are concerned, these other things—he—he he doesn't know what it's like to be pregnant. He doesn't know what it's like to have your wife cheat on you. He doesn't know what it's like to go through high school drama. He never did all that, which should be true for what we know, the records we have. He, those things did not happen to him. But that does not mean he doesn't understand those sins. Uh, and I think part of the reason we go there is because of a too incorrect view. Uh, that we have about our sins. Incorrect view number one about our sin is that we view it as somebody else's fault. He made me do it. Uh, I had to do this because of this situation. I was hungry. I'll tell you, when you're standing before God, he made me do it will not be a good excuse. Uh, Now, the Bible definitely speaks on uh, being accountable for causing another brother to sin. Yes, but at the end of the day, if you're standing before God, you're not going to be able to say, well, I was tired, so that's why that happened. And him, he and Jesus are going to be like, oh, well, never mind then. Let me just scratch that off. <laughs> Let's go on to page three. You were tired, so it doesn't count. <laughs> right? It's, it's not someone else's fault, but that's how we look at it. I did this because, because of some other cir- external circumstance. Well, that other external circumstance was a temptation, and then you had the choice whether not to give into it. And I know that could be weird and super impractical to think if someone just slapped me that that was just a temptation, um, but you got a choice at that point. <laughs> that choice may not be easy, uh, but I look in the script and I see someone who was beat, spit on, stabbed. Um, knowing the whole time that he could get out the situation like that. He could call a legion of angels and be just totally out the situation. And yet it says he was tempted. He wasn't forced, made, coerced into anything. No one's ever made me talk bad to them. Now, s- some people have said something sinful to me that tempted my pride, and in response I chose to jump into that in anger, but they didn't make me do it. So that goes into incorrect view number two, is that we got to look at heart issues. we got to dig down, dig deep, and find the heart issues of things that bother us. Almost everything we do is because of pride or lust. Almost everything we do, sin-wise, pride or lust. But we get caught up in the specific sin. Well, uh, I, I had to do this because... You know, I've been in charge in the past years with the church banquet, and then it didn't happen this year. And Sister Teresa was involved this year, and she wasn't doing it right. And God wants things decent and order, and I just wanted to be right for the saints. And we come up with all these excuses. Well, the real heart is like you got control issues, right? There was whether the other person who ran the banquet did it right or not. You were gonna have a problem because your pride was attacked when you found out you weren't over the banquet this year you were going to have a problem with something along the way because your pride was hurt. And as long as you see things as that top-level specific sin and don't dig down deep and say, why am I angry? Why am I frustrated? Why did that make me mad? So an issue? What, what is it about me that was attacked or threatened or was hurt that is this heart issue for me? You'll always see external things as your problems and you'll never be able to see God as someone who dealt with that same thing. Because at the end of the day, Jesus' pride was tested, right? When, if, you, if, you, if you get uh, dumped, so you ask a girl out, and she says no, or whether you get fired from a job, those are two different specific circumstances, but you have to deal with how do I handle rejection in both of them, even though they're very different specific situations. So if you get stuck on this and this and that, see, there's a heart issue of how do I handle rejection, and then you can go to the and say, oh... Jesus had to deal with rejection a lot, more so than I've had to deal with. Um, you can see that, man, like whether or not it's I want this particular lifestyle or uh, I want to like watch pornography, they're both lust issues. One's physical, one's material, but it's both a heart issue of lust. And Jesus had to deal with that. Internet wasn't around, no, but he still had to deal with lust, and he was tempted to that you may say, I'm not, I'm not buying that. That's a stretch. Well, let me tell you something. Something you got to buy if you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins. On that cross, he took on all your specific sins. He bore the weight. He went through the pain. He felt the separation from God. And in fact... He, he knows your sin in a way better than you do because he took on the punishment for that sin. As a Christian, you will never have to do. So he very much is someone who can sympathize with you and was tempted in every way that you are. He knows very deeply what you're going through as a human and even in, in some of these specific issues because he, his heart issues were tested in all these different ways. And so another point with that is understanding that he he did those things on the cross before you were born, right? He he, he knows it so well, he knew you were going to do it, and he knew how to handle it. One job of the high priest was to cover the accidental sins of the people, Um, to the point uh, so much that if you accidentally killed someone, you were allowed to stay in the Levite city of refuge until the high priest died. And then when the high priest died, you can go home and go free. Uh, and there's some Jewish history that says uh, the high priest's mom would like, bring those people cookies and food because they didn't want them to go killing her sons so they could go free. Uh, but the point is, Jesus says, I'm the same way. Like I'm covering all your sins, the accidental ones, the intentional ones. And when I die, I set the captive free. Last one, can he be a safe place? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, he is the definition of a safe place, right? Oftentimes, the same situation with my wife. She doesn't want to hear everything she did wrong as to why the internet in her room isn't working. Um, and I would say similarly, like in, in, in these situations, Christ saying, hey, I'm not here to condemn you. You, we, are, like, you are, we already know you did something wrong. That's not the issue. I'm here to save you and comfort you and sympathize with you. I think we, we as a, the body have to understand how to do that as well, right? As understanding that we don't need to talk to this person about for two hours about what they did wrong. We need to be loving and sympathizing with this person. God says, I am a safe place, I've already, you don't have to worry about like you do with your coworker. how are they going to respond? What do they already know? It's like, I already died for your sins. I already know everything you did. I've already covered it and forgiven you for it. I just want to talk to you about it. Just like you don't want that, uh, your friend to fix it. You just want to talk to them about it. And he says, do that with me. I want to be that safe place for you. Uh, and this is not to say that uh, friends aren't good, right? I'm a firm believer that godly friends are put in your life intentionally um, to be that mouthpiece and to understand how God can sympathize with you. Um, and I think it's also our job as Christians, if you are that person for someone else, to, to let them know more more so, hey, here's how God can sympathize with you in this way and, and to show how he is this good, good father. But what happens oftentimes is that what was once just an image bearer of God and your brother, a good person to go to, they become the replacement for God. And then when brother's not around, I don't know what to do. What am I going to do now? Right? Not saying grief will, will, but I think he is saying, look, uh, I'm still here. I was the source. And the people who, the Hebrew writers writing to, they need to know that as well. Because in five years, the temple was going to be destroyed. The Romans were going to come through, burn it down. No more high priests, no more temple, no more sacrifices. So now what? So they needed to know this. They needed uh, to be very well aware of this. So in this last part, it says, yet without sin. Um, I think that's something that often is what we use as like to say, well, what Jesus did didn't count. He never said it. He was God. Yada, yada yada. It wasn't, it wasn't really a thing. Um, and I think in this case, it's, it's spoken to someone who actually wants to do the right thing, right? If you have to go take a test, and you got one friend who's failed it four times, and you got one friend who's aced it four times, who's, who are you going to go talk to for the study guide? The friend who's aced it. And so I think this is written to an audience that says, hey, if you truly want to uh, live a, le- a less sinful life, I'm the friend who aced the test, I'm the one who you can come talk to. And I'm not going to condemn you for what you did wrong or what you haven't been doing. I'm going to sympathize with you because I've been there and I know what it's like. Also, uh, with this idea of not sinning, we have to realize that that's just not something we want sometimes. You don't really care too much about how do I respond to my coworker without sinning. I just, I just want to know on a base level, how do I respond to my coworker without getting fired? Right. Your Christianity compels you to have a certain level of sense. But it doesn't have to be sinless. How do I respond to my coworker without my other coworkers thinking I'm crazy? How do I respond and still be in line for this promotion I know is coming up when old boy retires in two weeks? I'm not particularly concerned with doing it sinless. So as he's saying, if you are actually concerned with this, then you can have so much confidence that you can come to the throne and get grace and mercy and help when you need it from the one who's been through all this. And you don't have to just see him as just the God who sits high and looks low. You can see him as the God who came down incarnate and lived and walked among us. Not that one or the other is better or bad or anything like that, but it's an extra element that I think we miss out on uh, when we just see God as the Israelites tell their high priest as just there's this super powerful dude that I can't really connect with who doesn't go to funerals, who stays in the church all day. So every now and then in the house, a wonderful thing happens. In our house with me and Carrie, I'll be sitting down, I don't know, typing, working on something, and then I'll hear from across the room, Cletus, can you come get this to work for me? And it's just, just, my heart just sings when that happens. Because I know, ah, she actually wants me to fix it this time. All right? And as I get up, I'm stretching, the smoke machine, coach put me in the game. Because I'm like, man, I'm, I'm up. This is, this is it. Because I, I know, even though I'm learning slowly uh, to, to sympathize with her feelings, For me, uh, in my mind, like, man, the granddaddy of it all is when I actually get to fix it. Um, And not to negate anything else said in this sermon, but I do think it's worth noting that when it comes to your sins, God wants you to know that, yes, I can sympathize with you. I can be there for you. I know what it's like. But the granddaddy of it all concerning your sin is that he can fix It's that unlike all those other high priests, right, his sacrifice worked. He didn't he didn't have to go in once a year. He didn't have to he didn't have to hope it was accepted. He didn't have to do all these other things to have to do. He didn't have to put on a certain, you know, hat and robe and all these other things. But when he passed through that heavenly curtain and offered his blood to the Father, it worked and it was fixed. I think he more than anything, right? Sympathize, He's there for you, but also remember like he has fixed your true problem. Deeper than your, your pride issue, deeper than your savior complex or whatever it may be the fact that you are a sinner is number one your issue and that has been fixed and addressed and healed. So I'd like to close with us reading uh, four verses from five chapters later in Hebrews in chapter 10 six chapters later, math is a little off so if you stand with me Uh, This will be our final thing. We'll read verses 11 through 14 on the screen or in your Bibles if you have them. It says, And every priest stands daily at at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. Uh, you can be seated. Um, If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, um, the hope is that this is, can be for you uh, just kind of the beginning of trying to understand how do I understand God on a more personal level. And when you sing that song, what a friend we have in Jesus all our <laughs> griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything God in prayer. And next time you sing that, you can actually mean it. You can actually feel, like, oh, it is a privilege to carry things to God in prayer. I know right now that's, that's hard to do. I'm sure if you, if you tried doing your homework, you realize it's hard even to just come home and thank God that you made it home and to remember that five days in a row. That's, it's difficult. But he says, I'm there for you. I sympathize with you. I know what it's like. I'm one of the most relatable people in the Bible, if not the most, really, most relatable For the unbeliever, if you've constantly seen God as not a safe place, every time I talk to a Christian, they're trying to tell me what I did wrong, how I need to change, how I sin. If you've seen him, this is this faraway God that people pray to but don't actually live for. Um, Forgive us for our shortcomings because it's true. We do act that way to a lot of people. We just get stuck on what they did wrong. Even if it's not wrong, if it's just different from what we do, it becomes wrong in our minds. But hopefully, um, this is something that can help you see God in a more personal light and someone that you wanna go to. Because I guarantee you, your, your friends, uh, your relatives, whoever that go-to personal comfort is for you, they won't always be there. But there's someone who will always be there, who has always been there and has already made a sacrifice available and ready for you to be a safe place for you to understand. Uh, so there will be uh, if you want to talk about any of those things with me on the lobby area, there'll be two elders uh, up here um, at the end of service that you can talk to as well. Uh, but let's let's pray uh, over our worship service we've had today. God, you are a good father. Uh, some of us have not had good fathers or good mothers or good families and homes uh, to make their relationship, uh, but Lord, come to us today, this week, uh, and just invade our hearts uh, and, and let us know that you're there to comfort us. Um, let us know that there's more to you we can seek out in a relationship to you than just praying for a medical miracle. Uh, God, let us know that you want to be with us now. You have been with us in the past and, you, and how much you want that eternal relationship with us in the future. Uh, for every believer, non-believer, God, I pray that they grow closer to you uh, because of something that was spoken today in, in some way that you will touch their hearts. I ask that we all get home safely. Um, and this is something that becomes a conversation in homes uh, that builds disciples and grows families stronger. Amen.